May we open our Bibles, all of us, please, to the prophecy of Nahum. The prophecy of Nahum in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. In verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry. The events that have been happening to our own country and that are indeed the subject of great controversy and discussion right now lead me to turn to this minor prophet in the Old Testament. Nahum predicted the destruction of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a Gentile city. And all that most of us know about Nineveh is the story of Jonah. We all know about Jonah being commanded to go down and preach in Nineveh. God said he would destroy it, but then Jonah preached and Nineveh repented and God did not destroy it. You know the story. But that was about 860 or 865 B.C. when that happened. And about 150 years later came along this prophet Nahum and he got up and he predicted that Nineveh would be utterly and totally destroyed for the same reason that God said he would destroy it the first time. Because of their sin. Because of their wickedness. And about 100 years after Nahum wrote this prophecy, Everything that he said in this prophecy about the city of Nineveh came to pass. It was utterly, totally destroyed, and it became a habitation for young lions. Now, there are many things about this minor prophet that are of great significance. One of them is simply that a prophecy was made, and it spanned a period of a hundred years, and it all came to pass. And anyone back in those days who saw the prophecy of Nahum coming to pass in the destruction of the city of Nineveh, and the very things that he said would take place in Nineveh did take place, people would say, well, now, Nahum was right, and Nahum's prophecy came literally to pass, and the city of Nineveh was destroyed, and it became a place for birds and for rats and for lions to dwell in. And if Nahum's prophecy came true over a period of a hundred years, Isaiah's prophecy is going to come true too. And Jeremiah's prophecy is going to come true also. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about the Old Testament. You have these prophecies that were made that spanned 100 years or 250 years, and you have these various things about the kings of Israel and how the prophets arose and said something would happen to Hezekiah and something would happen to this other, to David, and something would happen to Solomon and something would happen to Saul. And you have these references to these various leaders and then that which was predicted came to pass. 
And what I want you to say is that at almost every time, in fact, I believe if we could check it out carefully, of course, I don't believe anybody could possibly do it now, but if it be, could be checked out carefully, as God dealt with every generation. In that generation, things were happening in accordance with what the Bible had said would happen, which confirmed in the hearts of the believers that the prophecies of longer range, that prophecies of a longer span, that prophecies that went on yet into the future would be fulfilled with the same literalness and with the same definiteness as the prophecies were being fulfilled in their very presence. Now that's valuable to us today. It's exceedingly valuable to us because things are happening today in the last days, in the apostasy, in Jerusalem, in Israel. Things are happening today which are literally coming to pass and these things confirm in our hearts the faith that the prophecies of a greater span, the prophecies that go on yet into the revelation of Jesus Christ, the prophecies that go on yet to a new heavens and a new earth and a holy city, all of those things are going to be literally fulfilled. So Nahum's prophecy, even though it dealt with a very limited period of about a hundred years, and it dealt with the destruction of the city of Nineveh, which was a Gentile city of that day, even though all of that is past and gone, it has a great deal of value to us in that it was literally fulfilled in the destruction, the war in the streets, and all the things that are described here took place when the city of Nineveh was destroyed. And then there are those who feel, and perhaps with some justification, that the prophecy of, of the destruction of Nineveh, which exalts the judgment of God, the wrath of God, this book does not preach repentance, this book preaches certain judgment. Nineveh had her chance. Nineveh had had her opportunity. And then Nineveh turned her back and went on down into all manner of sin, and she became like Sodom and like Gomorrah in her corruption and her immorality. And God says there's nothing for Nineveh but judgment. Nothing for Nineveh but judgment. And there are those who feel that this is uh, a representation of the judgment of God which will be pronounced upon the Gentile world in its great apostasy as we come to this end time. Will you look, please, at the close of this little prophecy? Down toward the end. Notice verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. Notice verse 12, all thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall destroy thy bar. When the time of destruction comes, there won't be anybody that can help Nineveh. All her military might, all her protection will be absolutely worthless. Then notice verse 7. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. 
Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for thee? God's judgment upon this city because of its wickedness and because of its sin is going to be so complete that they'll say it's laid waste and who will ever do anything to raise Nineveh back up again? Who will ever do anything to bring any comfort or any words of encouragement to the people that live there in Nineveh? And the answer is there'll be none. There'll be absolutely none. Now turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. And, beloved, though this prophecy was fulfilled in a hundred years' span, and Nineveh was destroyed, the same God who judged Nineveh, the same God who dealt with sin and with iniquity, the same God that brought the calamities upon this wicked city still has the same ideals and the same standards of judgment by which he operates today. And the judgments of God are according to truth, and the judgments of God are going to be executed. And what Nahum is telling us here, that as we look at the destruction of Nineveh, we must look at God. He is a jealous God. He's a God who will in no wise acquit the wicked. He will in no wise wink at sin. He will in no wise uh, give triumph to his enemies. He will bring judgment upon them. And I'm convinced that the ministry of the church today, generally speaking, has simply neglected to preach the judgment of God as it reflects from his holiness and from his righteousness and from his very being. God Almighty is going to judge the wicked. Oh, how these words stand out in the New Testament, but the wrath of God abideth upon it. And if you want a description of the city of Nineveh, all you need to do is to turn to the first chapter of the book of Romans. Will you turn with me too to verses 21 and 22 of the first chapter of Romans and you have a description of what happened here in the case of Nineveh so far as God's judgment and his wrath is concerned. And in the first chapter of Romans, verse 21, because that... When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Nineveh repented under the preaching of Jonah. God had been honored in that place. They glorified him not, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore also God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And you know what they call that today, beloved? That's the new morality. That is the situation ethics. And if I wasn't disgusted with what I saw over there in Sweden, beloved. Sweden, of course, is one of the most socialistic countries in Europe. The government does everything for the people over there. And the people have virtually nothing left from their paychecks. You never saw people bound down to a government like they are over there. But as they've gotten this so-called security from the government, they've turned aside with all manner of license and all manner of sin. And there in that city, 600 miles above Stockholm, when I was there a week ago, I never saw 
so much looseness. I haven't seen it anything in our streets. On Saturday night there on the main promenade, you should have seen those boys and girls. They were utterly disgusting in what they did. And for the first time in all my life, I saw something I've never seen before. I almost hesitate to say. But you could go down the main street of that town and on the side streets and they had these vending machines with lighted up at night. And I saw several of them. And all those vending machines had in them were different types of prophylactics that boys and girls could go up and put their coins on the street where it's lighted and then go off and engage in their sin. And I saw that on the main streets there in Sweden. And the breakdown of morals and the corruption that's taking place in this world under socialism, under the constantly providing everything for the people. And I want to say to you people tonight from this pulpit, when I've come back here, you listen to the radio and all you hear from these liberals and from these socialists that we've got to do this and do that and provide this and give the Negroes this and provide them houses and give them everything and it's going to be just like Sweden. You just give it to them and you're going to have to change their characters. You're going to have to change their fear of God. You're going to have to put the judgment and the wrath of God before the whole people of the United States or it's going to be just like it is in Sweden. And this is what happened in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh turned aside to awful wickedness. Will you turn to chapter 3, verse 1? Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. It's full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. You people have heard me say something about the difficulties we've had with our, with our Christian beacon up here at the post office. We've had several difficulties over the time past. One was when they changed our second-class mailing permit to third-class and didn't tell us, and we had a fight on that. And then just recently, we're mailing out our books, and we've been mailing out our books now for some time under this four-cent rate. And without notifying or telling us or anything of the sort, we were informed that we were reclassified, and we now have to pay ten cents. And so we got after it, and we went up to got the Camden men. We talked with them. They tell us the whole thing came from Washington. Somebody made complaints to it against us in Washington, and they were rather hesitant about talking to us, but they said it was Washington, and they couldn't do anything. Their hands were tied. It was Washington. And I complained, and so, so yesterday, Friday, I went down to Washington to see the top man down there, and he says, I'm sorry, Dr. McIntyre didn't originate down here, it originated down in Camden, and Camden made the decisions. We had nothing to do with it, just a little routine matter as far as we're concerned. And beloved, one says it was here, and the other says it was there. And which one are you going to believe? Both of them can't be right. But this is the type of thing, beloved, that you're running into. This business of corruption and passing the buck and irresponsibility, it's the type of thing that you get when morals break down and men are interested and you read here about the bloody city. It is full of lies, full of lies and robbery and pray departeth not for the noise of the whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and the prancing horses, and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpuses, the corpse. They stumble upon their own corpse because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcraft, 
that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord. And the Lord of judgment, the Lord of wrath, is looking down upon the cities of America tonight. He's looking down upon this nation of ours that has known the light. Nineveh repented. Nineveh had the word preached to it. Nineveh had a Jonah who came in. And they repented and put their faith in the true God. And 150 years passed. And now this man Nahum comes and he warns Nineveh and he warns the people and he tells them that their whoredoms, their new morality has brought the disfavor and the wrath of God upon them and that the blood is going to flow in the streets and their own chariots won't be able to deliver them. And God Almighty is telling Nineveh right here that he is going to bring her down to ruin and she will be utterly destroyed. Notice verse 6. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. Now you turn please back to verse 14 of chapter 1, the latter part of verse 14. Well, I'll read the entire verse. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sound. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And, beloved, there goes with rejecting the two true God all of these whoredoms and abominations. There goes with the rejection of the true God all of the idols that arise in the place. And with it comes lies, robberies, murders, adulterers. And beloved, the city of Nineveh had become a wicked city. And God said that he would utterly destroy it and it would become a habitation for bats and for young lions and that the city would be laid waste. All right, now turn back to chapter 1. God is jealous. And, oh, beloved, may I say right now, vengeance belongs to the Lord. You and I couldn't possibly begin to execute vengeance upon those who've wronged us. And we're not going to attempt to. We're not interested in vengeance. We're interested in giving our witness to God and to his judgments and to his wrath. We're interested in preaching his love and his mercy. We're not interested in vengeance. But God is interested in vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay thee, saith the Lord. And here we read the vengeance of God. Now notice how it comes. Verse 2. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. And beloved, that's one of the greatest texts for us Christians. It's not my business to go out and pronounce wrath and to work for some kind of great damage or harm to my enemies. God's going to take care of them. God's going to deal with my enemy. God's told me to preach his word, to preach his wrath, to preach judgment, and to show man that there's a way of escape, there's a way of pardon, there's a way of deliverance. That's my task. God will take care of the judgment. God will take care of outpouring out his wrath in that great day which he's promised, and it's going to come. 
But the glory of it is that you and I who have been saved by Jesus Christ and washed by his precious blood, we're going to be delivered from that great day of wrath and that great day of judgment. But move on down just a little further. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. He has the power. His anger is there, but he will not acquit the wicked. And my friend, there is no escape from the judgment of sin. There is absolutely no possibility of anybody ever getting out from under the curse of the sin that's upon him. He will in no wise acquit the wicked. And it's this idea that there must be a a, a conviction that judgment will fall. There must be a conviction that God will not acquit the wicked. And I say to these rioters and to these murderers and to these people who have been guilty of this sort of crime against him and against our society, God Almighty is not going to acquit them. The Democratic Party may acquit them or the Republican politicians may acquit them, but God Almighty is not going to acquit them. He will in no wise acquit the wicked. And then we go on, and I want you to see the next. And this is what I want you to notice. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. You know, beloved, when I read in the papers, and they had big pictures of it over there in Europe, that our number one aircraft carrier called the Forest Owl was completely knocked out of service to this country in the battle with the communists in Vietnam. The story, of course, is we have is that plane took off and there was some sort of a backfire or something else and it ignited this uh, inflammable uh, gas that they had there and then it splashed over the deck of the uh, forest hall and other planes got on fire and bombs began to crack and to go off and then the thing became a living inferno with fire every hand, planes blowing and exploding and men being dashed to pieces until our casualist went up and up and up and finally they brought the thing under control but the forest all has been removed from combat and has been taken down yonder to the Philippines for six or nine months repairs and it'll probably be longer than that because they don't always tell you the truth when they give you these stories. And the minute I heard it, I said, Lord God, you're in the whirlwind. Lord God, you're in the storms. Lord God, you're in these things. And I want to say that that is a judgment of God upon this nation of ours that he would do for us what the communists wanted to have done. Put out a commission, the prince and the pride of our whole fleet when it comes to this matter of an aircraft carrier. The largest one we had was just put out a commission. Just put out a commission. And it was done in the providences of God. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. And one of the greatest illustrations of this in all human history is the story of the destruction of the Spanish Armada and the liberation and the victory that came to the little British Isles and that enabled that great land to become a Protestant land instead of a Roman Catholic colony of some kind to Spain. And the whole Christian world has recognized that God intervened in the great struggle that Britain had with the Spanish 
And the great deliverance was brought not by the generals, not by the admirals, not by the power of Britain, but it was brought by the power of a storm. The Spanish Armada went down. God hath his ways in the storm. God hath his ways in the whirlwind. And God hath his ways, and I tell you, beloved, tonight, if my country ever needed to repent, if we ever had preachers who rise up and tell the American people it's time for you to get away from your sin and confess it, that hour is right this very moment. God spoke to us when he and his providence took the forest all out of commission and we needed it over there in the battle against the communists. But that's the way God does, beloved. That's the way he works. He will not acquit the wicked. Now let's go down just a little bit further, a little further. And we come on down to verse 15. Well, let's don't go quite that far. Notice, if you will, verse 9. Verse 9. What do ye imagine against the Lord? Why don't you people listen to God? What is it you've got against him? What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. What is it that's the matter with you? What's wrong with your country? What's wrong with your people? What's wrong with the Negroes? What's wrong with the white people? What have you got against God? That you won't listen to Him. That you won't turn from your sins. What is it that you've got against the Almighty? Then it's in this great area that we have the answer. Will you notice, please, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust at it. Verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, 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 don't be like Nineveh. Listen, look what God's going to do to Nineveh, Judah. He'll do the same thing to you, Judah. Listen. Keep thy solemn feast. Perform thy vows, Judah. Get back to God, Judah. Observe the laws of Moses, Judah. Put your trust in the Messiah, Judah. For the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Oh, Judah, Judah. Look at what God's done to Nineveh. Look what God says he's going to do to Nineveh. Now, Judah, you keep your vows. Judah, listen to the one who's coming upon the mountain. He's preaching a message of peace. And it's peace with God. Peace with the Lord. Beloved, this is where we come now to an understanding of how it's possible. We're sinners. We're guilty. We're vile. 
There's no way that God can acquit the wicked. There's no way he can acquit the guilty. Here's the law. It's been broken. Oh, how our country's gone into sin these last weeks. How our country's gone down, 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 down into sin. Here it is. Beloved, the only way that God can do anything to help us is that he provided his son to pay the penalty for our disobedience in our stead. And Christ came, bore in his own body our sin, endured the wrath of God upon the cross. And because Christ did that, and only because Christ did that, there can be mercy in the cross. That's the only place there is, just in the cross. And I believe tonight, I've been thinking this week and wondering a lot about it, as you see the national stage and see what we're all looking at and wondering. What can be done to speak to this country and to tell our leaders that you're not going to solve our problem by just giving more money and more money and more promises and more money? You can give the Negroes all the jobs in the world and it's not going to change the blackness of their hearts. You can give the white people all the jobs in the world and it's not going to change the sin that's in their hearts. I was so interested when the U.S. News and World Report came out for the 14th and I recommend that everybody get a copy of that issue. I haven't had too much regard for the magazine for some time but when this issue came out it is fantastic, and it points out that out here in Detroit, in the midst of these riots, in the midst of all this vandalism, here were these white men in here, all kinds of them. Here were Negroes, all kinds of Negroes in here, occupying fine jobs, living on plush salaries, driving cars that weren't a year old, driving the high-make cars. Here they were, all of this sort of thing, and that they were in here just rifling and rifling and rifling and carrying off and get part of this whole thing. Poverty had nothing to do with it. It was their character. It was in their heart. That's what did it. And America has a sore. She has in the heart of her very being tonight a deep sore that nothing can remedy except a call to God. That's all. And I look at the president. He goes running off and says, we're going to appoint a commission. He sets up his race commission, ladies and gentlemen and puts on the commission some of the very organizations ought to be investigated. And then after he does all that, they come out and they're going to deal with the social problems and with the economic problems and the housing problems. But beloved, who is going to deal with the problems of character? Who's going to deal with the problems of family responsibility, mother and father teaching little Johnny not to rob or to lie or to steal? Who's going to tell the little daughter in the house that she better put some poison around and kill the rats instead of letting the rats just feed around? Who's going to tell the people these things? Where's that going to come from? Who's going to deliver the spiritual message in this hour that our country needs to hear? Beloved, the prophet Nahum has it. The prophet Nahum has it. 
And our problems in our country tonight are simply that we've gotten away and we're not preaching the judgment of God. We're not teaching the gospel of redemption. We're not teaching this message and preaching it. That'll make men love Christ and then clean up their lives and clean up their homes and clean up their communities and do it not for any other reason than that they want to glorify God. Where is God in the land? That's my question. And I want to appeal to you people tonight who love him and who believe in this blessed word. I want to appeal to every one of you to dedicate yourself and consecrate yourself to this blessed book and to the ideals of judgment that are in this book. And let's us ask God to forgive us of our sins as a people and let's walk in righteousness and walk in holiness and let's go out and seek to witness and to evangelize and to tell men that there's no escape. God will in no wise acquit the wicked. And vengeance belongs unto me and that day of reckoning, that day of judgment is coming and it's certain and there's only one way that anyone can ever get out from under it and that is to flee to Calvary and there find pardon and peace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But was there ever an hour when our men in leadership and our people had more disrespect for the gospel. Brush aside these fundamentalists. Brush aside these fellows who talk about God. Brush aside these fellows that talk about coming and repenting. Was there ever an hour when we had more disrespect for men who seek to present the word of God to the nation? And I want to appeal to you who are listening to me tonight to go to work. Let's go to work and speak of judgment. I read this little prophet of Nahum. I read it on my way to Europe. And I've read these other minor prophets. You go to reading them, beloved, and know how they speak so beautifully to us. The United States is just walking down the road that Nineveh walked. We're walking down the road of Nineveh. Woe unto that bloody city. Oh, it's full of lies. It's full of robbery. And God's judgment is going to fall upon us. And it's in hours of crisis, in hours of calamity like this, that the evangelist can arise and speak to the country. It's in an hour like this that the man of God is needed to cry out against all this abomination and to appeal to God's people to clean up their lives and clean up their homes and clean up their... relationships which they have. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank thee for the prophet of Nahum tonight in this message. It's so stern, but the Lord is indeed a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that are his. And Lord, thou knowest our hearts, thou knowest our message, thou knowest our witness in these days of great calamity. Father, bless the message tonight. Bless all of our hearts. For Christ's sake. Amen. All right, let's close, please, by singing hymn number 402, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's stand and sing the first and the last verse, please. <laughs>